This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Great Lakes Kids Apparel. That's right. Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers affordable, wearable, and playable clothes for your little one to enjoy. Plus, Great Lakes Kids Apparel is a mom-owned business, so you know your kids will love these clothes. And Great Lakes Kids Apparel offers fast, free shipping on orders over $50, not to mention amazing customer service. So head over to GreatLakesKidsApparel.com or click the link in the show description and use promo code LOCKS to get 20% off your first order today. This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome to the Check the Locks podcast. I'm John Connor. And I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you so much for joining us this week for another truly terrifying true crime case. Olivia, before we jump in, as always, how are you? How has your week been? I'm doing really good. You know, just working. How are you? Doing the same. It's fun finding time to squeeze these in. And a lot of people don't know, but you worked all night. And now we are recording an episode at 930. This is an early morning session. I've got my coffee. So thank you for being here and for doing the long haul. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Anything for our listeners. Speaking of listeners, it is Nurses Week. This episode is going to drop the Monday immediately after Nurses Week. So a big thank you to all of our nurses. And Olivia, what do you want people to know about what you do for a living and why we should be appreciating our nurses? I would just say, you know, thanks for acknowledging Nurses Week. And I think this case that we're doing today really fits in with it. But just be nice to your nurses right now. Be nice to all your healthcare providers. It's been a rough two years with the pandemic and we're all just struggling a little bit. So just thank a nurse and just tell them how much you appreciate them and that their work doesn't go unnoticed. Yeah. And I know we have a couple nurses that I know personally listen to the show. A big shout out to my friend Morgan Bryant, who is an amazing nurse practitioner. I have a friend named Neely Seltzer, who is also a nurse. So thank you for all the hard work. If you know a nurse, give them an extra hug, buy them a coffee. I know you have told me that nurses really enjoy snacks. So, you know, get your nurse a snack, order them pizza, do something. We had pizza last night. So I'm going to give a shout out to my nurses in the neuro ICU at Tulane. Happy Nurses Week to you all. 
Happy Nurses Week. So Olivia, I am super excited for your case this week. And to my understanding, it actually ties in with Nurses Week. Am I correct? It does. So this week, we're going to talk about Terry Eden Maples Rochelle's. And it's actually a medical murder case. So I thought that this would be a great case to release during Nurses Week or around Nurses Week as the case is about a registered nurse. Awesome. Well, I cannot wait. A huge shout out to any of the nurses who may be listening to this podcast. We definitely appreciate you. With this tying into Nurses Week, I am so excited to get into it. So what do you say? Should we jump on in? Yeah, let's get started. So today we're going to talk about Terry Eden Maples Rachels. So we're going to kind of put you in a scenario, John. Okay, so go into your hospital brain right now. So imagine you're a hospital administrator in November of 1985. And you get a call, let's say, from an anonymous person reporting that there was a noticeable amount of sudden cardiac arrest only noted to be in the surgical ICU at Phoebe Putney Hospital in Albany, Georgia. Just to make sure that I'm putting my brain in the right place, I get the call that there is a seemingly crazy number of cardiac arrests happening in one specific ward. Yeah, correct. So the surgical ICU at this hospital in Albany, Georgia, someone anonymously put in a call to an administrator letting them know that, hey, there's been a lot of cardiac arrests here lately. So you as the administrator begins this hospital review. After the hospital's review, there were found to be six suspicious deaths and an equal number of near misses that happened around late October that year in 1985. So the police were initially notified and after six post-mortem, which is after death, meaning they examined these six patients after they had died, after these examinations were done, they all pointed to injections of potassium chloride. So potassium chloride is a safe medication. You know, people who take a medication to get fluid off their body, they pee out their potassium. And so we give potassium chloride as a, a replacement, just like if you were deficient in vitamin B, you take vitamin B. So same thing, but in high doses, it can be very lethal. So then we start the investigation and it shows that there were 26 cardiac arrests in November of 1985 alone. Now we're going to stop right here and let me just explain. Cardiac arrest is not a common thing. If you're doing your job correctly, we may have like one or two a month, if that. And so 26 in a month, that means there was only really four or five days in November that there were not any cardiac arrests. That's insane to me. Yeah, that seems like an insanely high number. And being a layman, someone who is not familiar with that world at all, even then in my head, I'm like 26 is a crazy amount of cardiac arrest. Also, we need to make a t-shirt that says pee out your potassium. Yes. <laughs> Number one seller, I guarantee. <laughs> so yeah, like say you have an 800 bed hospital and you're having 26 cardiac arrests throughout the hospital, that may not be a big number. But if you're talking about one specific ICU, like my ICU that I work in, I think is 22 beds. So if you're having 26 in one month in one unit, something's not right. So that's a huge red flag. So the six victims were 68 year old Milton Lucas who happened to have cardiac arrest on October 19th, and then 58-year-old Minnie Hoke on November 7th, 36-year-old Joe Irwin on November 10th, 36-year-old Roger Park on November 15th, 73-year-old Andrew Daniels on November 24th, and then sadly enough, a three-year-old Norris Morgan on November 26th. Now, we talked about how there were six cases of people who passed away, and then we had near misses. So there were some survivors that came out of this alive and hopefully well, those being Sam Bentley, George Whitting, Francis Freeman, and Jack Stevens. 
And all I want to say is like, if I could just talk with these survivors of this horrific thing, I would love to hear their experience in the hospital, kind of how they're dealing with everything now. It's already a scary enough place to be in the hospital, let alone have a near miss by a nurse. Yeah. And I was curious because I know that you said it was potassium chloride, which obviously people know potassium is in bananas, things like that. It's a a natural thing. But when we talk about a potassium chloride overdose or enough that would cause a cardiac arrest, how much is that? What are we talking as far as how much potassium chloride would it take for someone to go into that cardiac arrest state? Yeah. So a lethal dose of potassium chloride. So we'll go kind of back. So when people are on death row and they are lethally injected, they are getting injected with one of the three drugs is potassium chloride. So a hundred milli equivalents of potassium chloride is considered a lethal dose. So say you take a medicine, you're peeing out your potassium again, and I needed to just replace your potassium. So a normal potassium level is like 3.5 to 5. So for every 10 milli equivalent, your potassium level should rise by 0.1. So say your potassium level is four and you take 20 milli equivalents of potassium every day, your potassium level should be about 4.2. Lethal doses are 100 milli equivalents. We prescribe it in 10 milli equivalents tablets. So a significant large dose of potassium. Yeah, that seems like it would be a lot. And I'm wondering how many bananas you would need to eat to get that amount of potassium, 100 milli. (laughs) A whole tree of bananas, probably. No, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great question. I don't even know how much potassium is in a banana. Well, we've had some really great people in the Facebook group who have answered some awesome questions. So if you know how many bananas you would need to eat, I'm going to throw that out there. Let's see how many responses we get on that one. Right. Okay. So there was other deaths that they thought were related to this specific incident. And there was a 26-year-old jail inmate in December um, that had cardiac arrest. And then there was three or four other deaths dating back to like mid-August. So before the investigation really took place of these just suspicious cardiac deaths. So with the access to the healthcare records, the police were able to find a lead and they started to investigate 24-year-old female nurse, Terry Eden Maples Rashals. And so by March 13th, she reportedly confessed to injecting five patients with the lethal dose of potassium chloride. Again, the, the 100 milli equivalents. So at this point, she was indicted on six counts of murder and 20 counts of assault. That is insane to think that someone could be indicted on that many counts in such a short period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a nurse. And so, you know, first do no harm. You're there to take care of your patients. You're there to be an advocate for your patient. I mean, I have six years of nursing education. Um, I have my master's in nursing and you learn a lot on how to talk to your patients, talk to their families, how to take care of them. And like, that is your main goal is just keep your patients safe and alive and try to get them back to their health and not inject them with potassium and try to, I guess, murder them essentially. Yeah. It makes me very interested to find out exactly why she was doing this, which I'm sure we're going to get to in a little bit here, but the motive part is really what's piquing my interest right now. Yeah. So let's talk about who is Terry Rayshaws. So Terry was adopted when she was about three years old to a woman named Louise Maples and Jim Maples. So Terry's mother, Louise, apparently died of a stroke in 1972. So Terry should have been about 11 years old at that time. And there were reports that her adopted father, Jim Maples, was an alcoholic and that he had molested her after her mother had passed away. So she reportedly moved with other relatives of the Maples family in Albany when she was about 16. She married Roger Ray Charles and reports of tension in their relationship came about and he confessed to physical abuse towards Terry. But otherwise, there's not much around on where she went to school, like 
where she went to high school, where she went to college, where her nursing degree is from. So kind of from the age of 16 to 24, there's no real information on who she was because at this point, she's just a regular woman growing up, you know? And it sounds like the experience that she had as a child and the abuse and assault, like a lot of people who live that as a child tend to have an adult relationship with someone who shows those same tendencies. And obviously not every case is like this, but it's almost like this is what you're attracted to because of the place that you came from. Yeah, it's all that she knows. She knows abuse. She knows alcoholism. She just knows this superior alpha male, I guess we could say. And so it seems like she started dating someone that was abusive towards her. So there's a couple of things that I could find about what has been said about Terry, like who her peers thought she was. And a former nursing supervisor claimed that Terry had been beaten by her husband. And there were reports that Terry had said to other nurses that I've never been good at anything. My father drank, my mother died when I was 11, and I was molested by my dad at 11. And that's a quote from Terry. So let's jump back into the investigation. The defense claimed that Miss Rachels had been abused as a child and was suffering from mental disease that caused her to do unusual things that she cannot remember. So basically focused on mental illness and how her troubled past caused her to be mentally ill in that moment and do actions she wouldn't normally do and that she, quote, couldn't remember. I mean, if you're taking care of a patient, I can sit back and talk to my bosses and we'll just say certain keywords or certain diagnoses and we can figure out very quickly who we're talking about. So you can remember your patients. You can remember certain cases very vividly because different patients impact you in different ways. So that, that she just couldn't remember is just absurd to me. Of course, there's other patients that don't make that huge of an impact on you. And so you can't remember everything. But in her case, if you're injecting your patients with potassium and you're doing CPR, you're going to remember every case that month that you did CPR on. That's a traumatic thing that's happening. And you're going to remember that shift. A hundred percent agree. And also I wonder too, if that because what she was doing was so horrific that if subconsciously she tried to block that part out, you know, our brains do strange things. So if you realize that you've done something terrible, especially with being molested as a child, being abused as a child, being with somebody as an adult who exhibits those same traits, if your brain is subconsciously pushing things down as a way to allow yourself to get through the day. Yeah. And I'm sure she's learned how to blank out certain traumatic things, probably just like when her dad molested her, she learned to just go numb and be, you know, just ignore it in a sense. So I could see that. I mean, that's a very valid point. The district attorney described Miss Rachel's as a ruthless tigress, and some called her the murderess of the century, who was obsessed with power and control over the lives of others. She was criminally responsible for the injections because she understood the consequences of her alleged act and was not motivated by feelings of mercy. So the DA is basically saying she has this obsession with power and control, and she's making these people suffer cardiac arrest, and she's got this godlike complex where she's trying to revive them and bring them back, and unfortunately, Unfortunately, six of these patients didn't survive. And that's where the 20 counts of assault come from because she tried to and she saved their lives essentially when she brought them back. It's funny how all of the theories can tie back to her childhood because I'm sure as a child, again, suffering abuse, suffering molestation and wanting to be saved and not getting that, not feeling safe, just wishing that someone would come and save you. She's now in the position where she can bring someone to the brink of ending their existence and then be the hero that brings them back and saves them. So just the way that this could be potentially tied into the way that the mind works and in a strange way, trying to deal with your own trauma, I think is very interesting. 
Yeah, so this is where it gets confusing. Terry is quoted saying, it seemed like I was helping them, them being the patients, she said. They were lying there with tubes everywhere. I just couldn't stand to see them suffering. So she injected patients to end their suffering and to ease the anguish of their families. So here we have Terry saying that she felt like she was doing them justice, helping them. She didn't want them to suffer anymore, that she was helping the families not be in pain anymore. And then you have her defense, her her team saying that basically she can't remember anything. And she's telling you, this is what I was doing and this is why I was doing it. So the whole case just doesn't add up. And as her attorney, I am sure they're like, shut up, shut up, dude. We're trying to help you. Yeah. And she's like, no, I I did it. This is why I did it. And they're like, no, we're trying to plead a case that you couldn't remember that all your trauma means that you just black it out and you're doing things that you wouldn't normally do. And she's sitting there confessing to it, basically. Yeah. And even in her confession, again, it still seems like it ties back to what happened to her as a child because no one was there to end her suffering. No one was there to help her out of that situation. So when she says, I just couldn't stand to see them suffering, it could be interpreted as a reflection of how she felt as a child. And again, not excusing any of the behavior. If you go through trauma as a child, if you go through trauma as an adult, I mean, you can do therapy on your phone now, right from the comfort of your own home, like deal with that shit. But it is interesting how the brain works and how something like that could be tied back to that trauma. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very valid point. You know, she just obviously hasn't worked through her past. So the trial was in September of 1986, and there were references made about these supposed confessions by Terry. But when she took the stand, she denied having any recollection of the attacks. So it sounds like her team sat down and said, "Okay, Terry, remember, you don't remember what happened. But I do remember. This is what I did. Right, right. So now when she takes the stand, she doesn't remember. She was found guilty, but mentally ill on one count of aggravated assault, which ultimately acquitted her on all other charges. The jury claimed that the prosecution did not prove their case, and she was sentenced to 17 years in prison with three years of probation on release. John, go ahead and tell us a little bit about what guilty but mentally ill means. And we actually had to look this up because it wasn't a sentencing that we were familiar with. So for people who may be wondering... The guilty but mentally ill or GBMI verdict is a verdict option that enables juries and judges to find a defendant guilty of committing an offense while formally acknowledging that the defendant has a mental illness. The GBMI does not usually replace the insanity defense standard, but presents an additional verdict option. The GBMI verdict has met with sound criticism and little empirical support. Nonetheless, 20 states have adopted it. Oh, wow. 20 states have it. That's interesting. Yeah, so there's 20 states where they can basically say, hey, you're guilty of doing this, but you're also mentally ill. And so you may be subjected to a lighter sentence because of that. Yeah, and she was. She killed six people and was only sentenced to 17 years in prison with three years of probation. She was released from the Savannah Women's Transitional Center after completing her 17-year sentence in April 2003. So where is Terry Eden Maples Rashals? Honestly, I can't find much about her, but from what I can find, she still appears to be living around the Albany, Georgia area, and it seems like her and her husband, Roger, the guy that she was married to at the time of her conviction, are still married. The heart wants what it wants. (laughs) So this case, this one may not make you check the locks, but I have a lot to say about nurses who are committing crimes against their patients. Like I said earlier in the episode, the first thing we do is do no harm. You take care of your patients. You make sure that they're safe. You advocate for them. You make them your priority during your shift. So what do you think about this case, John? 
Well, with that question, it seems like it's probably a great time to get into the deadbolt test. This, to me, on a certain level, and I will preface this by saying I am someone who grew up terrified of going to the hospital because hospitals were always the place where you were sick. I had this vision of, like, you go to the hospital when you're not going to get better. You know what I mean? It's just this weird psychological thing. I, I had a fear of them. I just didn't like going. And it wasn't until you know I got older and got married and now I have a child. And I understand that it's important to go get your yearly physical, make sure that you're healthy so you can be around for your family and stuff like that. But for a very long time, that was not my mindset. So the idea that there is someone who should be taking care of you, their first goal should be, again, to do no harm. And this is the person that you are having to fear is terrifying to me, you know, because you don't know if you're going into that hospital setting, are you getting that nurse that just decides that day that you're the one that's going to go into cardiac arrest and hopefully she's able to bring you back. So for me, just based on my life experience, I would probably say this is a seven for me because this is like the epitome of my nightmare, especially when I was younger, where I was like, I'm going to go to the hospital and I'm not going to come home. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to take this on a different level. So I've been a nurse, an ICU nurse for 11 years, and I've been a nurse practitioner in an ICU for six. And I could not even imagine the thought even crossing your mind to one, go to the Pixis, the machines that hold all the medicines, pulling out all of this potassium one, how did no one catch it in pharmacy? But I guess potassium such a, me- it's a medicine I give every morning. Like every morning I go in, I check my patient's electrolytes and I order potassium. So it's a drug that's ordered routinely, can be done multiple times a day. But when big doses are going missing in one unit, I can understand where she was coming from to walk in there, walk into her patient's rooms and deliberately inject them with medication that she knew that could kill them. That just blows my mind. And me as a nurse, I don't understand it. I will never understand it. And I would love to speak with the survivors and see what their take is on it, you know, because they may be people like you who were afraid of hospitals, didn't want to go there. And then now all of a sudden they're in the hospital they're in an ICU, so they're critically ill and they wake up, they recover. And the next thing you know, they're being told that, oh, there's this lawsuit that's happening because your nurse tried to kill you. I would never step foot in a hospital again. I would be terrified if I was sick. I agree with you a hundred percent. If something like this happened to me and by the grace of the universe or whatever higher power you believe in, I lived never again. I would turn to Eastern medicine so fast. It'd be valerian root for everything. I would just be chewing it nonstop. You'll be a vegan, no more Taco Bell. There's nothing that would take Taco Bell away from me. Hey, technically beans, beans and tortillas are kind of vegan. Yeah, but you don't ever know what is in Taco Bell beans or tortilla, you know? (laughs) So Right, very true. So I'm going to take this one and coming from me as being a nurse, I'm going to take it from I'm the nurse and how I feel as a nurse. And so this one to me is about a three. But if I was someone who was not in the healthcare field, I would be terrified. And I would probably rate it a little bit higher. But for me, knowing that I would take care of my patients in the best way possible and just would not do this to them. Yeah. Accidents happen and people make mistakes. And we can see that during the Vanderbilt nurses case, you know, where she's under litigation for injecting the wrong medication. So there's things, medical errors happen all the time, but this is not an error. This was intentional. Like, again, like I said, like have some sort of godlike complex where she makes them suffer cardiac arrest. She resuscitates them and some of them made it and some of them didn't. And to me, it's just disgusting. So from my nursing standpoint, I'm going to say this one was a three. 
So that is where we land on the deadbolt test, but we want to know where do you land? You can let us know. You can follow us on the socials. We are on Instagram at check the locks pod. We're on Twitter at check the locks. You can also join our Facebook group. Olivia, we are just shy of 200 members. I don't know if you've seen, but there's been some great conversation, people sharing how they feel about these cases and where they would rank them on the deadbolt test. It's been absolutely awesome. So please follow us on the socials. If you go into the show notes, you can actually find the links. Join us. We would love to have you. And Olivia, I think now would be a great time to read a five-star review. What do you think? Oh, I love reading our reviews. I love that everybody reaches out, gives us feedback. I love that people are answering our questions that we have during the podcast on the Facebook page. This five-star review is from KM396546. Subject line is love it. This is my new favorite. Just listen to the Michigan thrill kill. I remember when this happened. I live in Westland and my daughter was a senior in 2007. So to think of her friends at that time made me riveted to the details. Great show. Love you guys. Can't wait to hear more with a heart emoji. So thank you, KM396546. Reach out to us on the Facebook group or send us an email and we will send you some swag. Thank you, KM, and then your entire social security number. We appreciate (laughs) you. We love you too. Yes, reach out to us. Send us an email. Hit us up on the socials. We will send you some cool stuff. Thank you for supporting the show. And Olivia, if someone wants their review read on the show, if they want to get some free swag, we've got cool buttons now, all sorts of stuff. How can they do that? Go on Apple Podcasts and you have to leave us a five-star review and leave us your review. Tell us what you think. Give us any feedback. We love hearing from y'all and hopefully you'll be the lucky one who we read next week. Absolutely awesome. And guys, also not sure if you knew this, but you can actually leave us a voice message that we can play on the show. So we would love to hear if you guys have any questions any feedback, anything to add to any of the cases that we've done, if you head over to checkthelockspod.com, in the bottom right-hand corner, there is a little microphone. Hit that button. You can leave us a voicemail. It comes right to us. Again, we'll play your questions on the show. We'll play your comments. Anything interesting that you would like to add, we would love to hear it. So that is all we've got. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We will be back with you next Monday. Thank you for the love. Thank you for the support. And until next time... Don't forget to check the locks. And pee out your potassium. We'll see you next week. <laughs>